1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and Tony Hodson the coach's voice. Arsenal is a club divided against itself. Chelsea is a club that has found unity in adversity. The contrast is obvious, but still shocking. Chelsea's fans are supporting their own. Homegrown players represent loyalty, commitment and hope. Frank Lampard is exceeding expectations as manager. Arsenal fans are in revolt. They rejected their manager and jeered their captain. His reaction was unforgivable, but understandable. Something's got to give, hasn't it, John? Yeah, it's a very interesting
0: comparison, I must say, because I think that if you were talking about sort of fans having a disconnect with their club, maybe even a disconnect with the manager, then you'd be looking at Chelsea in the last couple of years, wouldn't you? You'd be looking at their falling out of love with certain players, with Maurizio Sarri, taking the Chelsea fans on, even though, of course, he guided them, let's not forget, into third place, and then won them a European trophy. Previous to that, Antonio Conte's kind of breakdown of relations with his players. And the unifying force now of Frank Lampard, I think, is an example to Arsenal, really, that you have to have the right man to guide the ship. Really, And I know that's an obvious statement, but I do think that Arsenal, I I think, ultimately have gone for the wrong man in Unai Emery. I'm surprised, if I'm honest, at how quickly the fans have turned on Emery. But you felt it coming very early on in the season. On the back of a previous season, where let's not forget, Emery came in after 22 years of Arsene Wenger. The squad was in need of some work, surgery, got them into fifth. Yes, they blew the chance to get into top four, which would have been a sensational return, I think. And also, they obviously blew the Europa League final against Chelsea. But I just think that I've been surprised at how quickly it's unravelled. And I think that's to do with Emery's lack of communication, a complete lack of connection with the fans, this ridiculous notion that he should hold some sort of player ballot to, to select a captain. And guess what? He's ended up with the wrong captain. Now, I'm appalled by fans booing their own player, booing their own captain. Abusing his wife. Absolutely. And, and you cannot defend that. And if you think, as a fan, that that kind of toxic, fractious atmosphere within a stadium is actually going to help the team, that you're actually going to support the team by doing that, then you're living on cloud cuckoo land. And then the whole notion then, that Arsenal could get it back... Two, three, two, which I actually did. Although then, sort of kiboshed by a VAR, is testament to the the mental strength and spirit within some of the players in that dressing room. But it is actually. I think, some of the fans, really, and the reaction to Xhaka. Listen, we've all got strong opinions on Xhaka. He's a player mm. that divides opinions. But does any player deserve that? No, absolutely not. And to be honest, they've probably got to remove him as captain now. I can't see any other way round. But really, the fans, that's not the fan sort of kind of behaviour or
1: culture that I grew up with. And I was really surprised and, and sickened by that. I don't like that. Mm. The players... To a degree, Tony voted with their feet, didn't they? You know, we are led to believe they went round to Jacka's house to commiserate, I suppose. Mm. But when you get this, what does it tell you about modern football? It's all about the polluting effect of social media and this whole idea that you can criticise without responsibility.
2: Yeah, it's just this idea, isn't it, that that I've got a view, I've got an opinion, I'm going to share it, no matter how toxic it is, no matter how disrespectful it is. I think you're right, John, I think what is lacking at Arsenal, there is is great spirit amongst some of the players, there's great quality amongst some of the players, what's lacking is leadership, actually from the very top of the club all the way down. Um, The idea that you've got a manager asking the players who should be captain, feels very kind of reality TV, 21st century, doesn't it? That's Mm -hmm. not the way it is. He obviously looked around the squad and didn't see anyone standing out, by think there are leaders in there. I think um, David Louis, for all his mm. inconsistencies, both as, as a player and a player, pretty young player, Guendouzi, always impressed me. I mean, Guendouzi looks like the natural captain of the team, doesn't it? But but he's still very young and you know still establishing himself in the team, albeit you could argue he's already done that. Um, Lacazette, Aubameyang, you've got top-quality players in there. And let's not forget, they're fifth. Tottenham are 11th. And Pochettino's under plenty of pressure himself, but... There isn't this sense of, you know, you're not seeing the Tottenham fans reacting the way the Arsenal fans did
1: yesterday. It was, it was dispiriting. Mm. With, um, if you look at Arsenal's situation, and when we mentioned Arsenal this season, we tend to mention the player who gets nowhere near the team, Mesut Ozil. Mm. Does Ozil <laughs> represent the failure of management that might eventually end up doing for Unai Emery? Well, I just think he's that kind of, he's representative almost of, of, of what's gone
0: wrong. But also the, the ridiculous nature of this whole swirling atmosphere, you know, between sort of club management and fans, because anyone who—I mean—it's almost like the fans have reinvented Özil and suddenly held him up with this symbol of, you know, of everything that's gone wrong. Well, actually. You know, let's let's look at this a little bit more closely. The fans were, were, were fuming with Urzu on occasion. They basically called him a disgrace. They wanted him out of the team, not working hard enough. You know, they'd fallen out of love with this player. I think he's a wonderful player, but has he done himself justice during his time at Arsenal? Probably not, no. Uh, I just think, it, it, but he also represents this idea of fantasy because he, he's just, he has got the, the world of talent. He's got the, the world at his feet, really, with ability-wise. He clearly doesn't fit into Emery's plans. And therefore, Ozil has become a very convenient stick uh, for the fans to beat with uh, Emery with, really. And that's the issue, isn't it? But look, I wrote something a few weeks ago saying that I think Ozil you know, probably hasn't got a future at the club. He doesn't think he's got a future at the club. But just because he's been sort of ostracised like this, it's obvious that he doesn't fit into Emery's plans. Mm. I mean, there's been clear games where he thought, whether it be a, you know, Carabao Cup game, whether it be Europa game, where what's the point, what's the problem in putting him in? Well, there's clearly been an issue why he hasn't put him in. Let's see what happens on Wednesday night. Mm. Because if he doesn't, again, play him on Wednesday night, well... You're obviously saying, which I don't think you will, by the way, but it's just, you know, it's a clear message that they've taken the decision on it. The club are gearing up to to try and to offload him in January. But it just shows you, it highlights this this kind of breakdown, really. I mean, I I still think that Arsenal will stand by Emery um, for the time being and basically, while they're in contention for top four, they stick with him. Mm. Because Emery, I think, uh, you know, I feel sorry for him at the moment, really, because he's got this Özil issue, which you know the fans have suddenly sort of jumped upon, mm. and they'd fallen out of love with him. And let's not forget, it was a year ago. I looked it up. It was it was basically this time last year that Arsenal fans were chanting, "We've got our Arsenal back." And now, fast forward twelve months, and what have you got now? You've got a club, you know, fractured with the same old problem you know, of the the dog days of Arsene Wenger. Well, what is the consistent in there? And the consistency, I'm afraid, is is the fans. Mm. And, And they're having, they've got a backlash. I think some of the fans are great, and particularly the away fans are absolutely fantastic. But this new fan culture within there, you know, a lot of Arsenal fans were very upset about the booing of Granite Xhaka. So it wasn't everyone there. And they were a bit embarrassed about it because I don't think you boo your own players. I really don't. No.
2: The Urzel situation is staggering though, isn't it? Because you've got a situation now where it's almost part of the weekly narrative of Arsenal that there's going to be some kind of press release or statement that Urtel's not in the matchday squad. Yeah. And at the same time, you say he doesn't fit into the plans of the club or the manager. Actually, the manager's find himself playing quite often a 4-2-3-1 mm. where Urtel is the absolute stonewall number 10 to fit in that system Yeah, that system's made for him if they're playing Danny Ceballos for example in there now he's a guy who isn't really still very young let's not forget probably having a first full season of first team football really obviously a lovely talent but is he any better than Herzl in that same role no I mean, I'd say not no, I mean, know, they're not playing him in away games a
0: lot or in difficult games because they see him as a Something of a luxury. Yeah. It is a fail- It is partly a
1: failure on on on, on Emery's part, isn't it? And yeah. I think when well, you talk about his plans, John, mm. what are his plans? You know, you look at he, the way he's misused Torreira, for instance. He's saying, you know, I've got to play. He's got to play further up. Him. He's a defensive midfield player. Mike. He
0: played one game in in the Europa League. I think it was Stanley Age, where he sat in front of the back four. And he he was excellent. And that's what he does. And that's what he is for Uruguay. That's what caught the eye. And then basically, why on earth you suddenly reinvent him as, as the furthest forward in midfield or indeed the number eight? Is anyone's guess? Arsenal finally got themselves a number six and they don't play a number, the number six in the number six. I mean, it's just beyond comedy. But they killed but, themselves because of they, that's where Xhaka plays, and he's yes, the captain, and absolutely. he has to play. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And then Xhaka, <laughs> listen, you know, I feel a bit sorry for Xhaka right yeah, now. Totally. I think he's been, been you know, so sort of poorly treated. He, I, I, I personally don't think he's quite, he, he's quite good enough for, for, mm. for Arsenal, really. And if Arsenal want to take the step forward. But the other frustration for Emery is, what is Emery's identity on that team? Is it a pressing team? No. Is it a a counter-attacking team? No. Is it possession-based? No. We don't really know what Emery's tactics are all about. Can he handle big players, big egos? No. And I think all of this, you know, I've probably been quite hard on the fans, but I can also see it from the other side in that basically I can see a fan frustration there is that basically they've finally got their wish for the change of manager and actually they're not really sure what this new manager is representing and and therefore I get their frustrations but I just don't think it's right to take
1: it out on a player and make it make the situation worse you're you're dealing with coaches on a daily basis tony um, i accept john's argument that at the moment at least it, we don't think that unai emery is going to be sacked although well, we might walk out of this studio <laughs> and something completely <laughs> different if you're looking around which what sort of coach, what sort of names would you look at? You know, I, 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 I couldn't look beyond um, Arteta, for instance, but who are the sort of coaches who would work at Arsenal? Well, I think it's, a, it's such a big question because it's, it's
2: kind of so long since any coach other than Arsene Wenger mm. worked at Arsenal. Um, and when I say worked, I mean, didn't just operate there, but actually worked the positive effects for the club. The fans would want a big name. Wouldn't they? They would want. They would want to be operating a level where you're saying, well, it's not working for Thomas Tuchel at PSG. He wants a job. Julian Nagelsmann is at, is at Leipzig doing a good job. You know, but would they look at a bit lower down? We talked. We were talking before we came in about Jesse Marsh at Salzburg, who's doing
1: great things. Mm. You know, they interviewed Ragnik last time, didn't
2: they? Yes, they did. And I, you know, from what I know of Ragnik, he'd, he'd, he'd love a shot um, both in the Premier League and at Arsenal. And again, if you want to talk about coaches with absolutely nailed-down philosophies of how they want to play the game, Ragnik would be a, would be a great fit. It's such a difficult situation. I think it's all academic because I don't think they're going to part with Emery. I mean, we could be proven wrong, but it doesn't feel like that's the way the wind is
1: blowing, does it? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And as you said right at the start, John, what Chelsea have done is back the right horse, basically, haven't they? Yeah, they really
0: have. And it, it, it shows a realisation, I think, that basically if you, if you tap into... That kind of legendary status, that former player—I mean, that... one of our own—bit absolutely. Yeah. And, and and you you know, Arsenal. That's the point, isn't it? That basically, if they'd gone for a, for a Omri, if they'd gone for a Vieira, to a lesser extent, an Arteta, you'd have that connection. And the thing is that Chelsea have bought into that, tapped into that, and Lampard has got that immediate goodwill. Everyone wants him to succeed. I mean, he's great with the fans, he gets the fans, he's brilliant with the media, gets his message across, communicates well, buys into the young players, loves the young players. You feel his enthusiasm with every word, with every bit of praise that he he heaps on those young players. And I love it. It it, it energises you, basically. So, you know, alone knows what it does for the players. But it really really has lifted them. You know, some of those players are great success stories. At the start of the season... I, honestly, of all the young players you think you'd make it, would think we'd get a chance. Yes, you'd definitely say Mount. You'd think that Abraham would get some outings. He's far exceeded expectation. Um, Abraham with James, I think, was another obvious look at. But, you know, I, I would hold up to Tamori. Because Tamori, I think most people would say at the start of the season, oh, it would be, be quite some distance away. I'm not sure about him. He's he's, he's, Mm. he's done fantastic. And that, you know, that is sort of typifies that kind of, you know, homegrown talent that Lampard has ushered in. Mm. The fans are prepared to live with any mistakes, not that there have been too many, and basically really back the the team, back the manager, and fall back in love with the
1: club. I love that all round connection. Chelsea are absolutely spot on with it. Mm. Because it is interesting, Tony, that if you think of those players, they spent last season at Villa. Wigan, Derby, you know, someone like Hudson-Odoi was was on the outside looking in mm. at Chelsea itself. Um, that is there a model beginning to, you know, we've always, we've always said about Chelsea, <coughs> look, they, they send far too many people out on loan. But on this case, in this case, because it was perhaps more strategic, it actually has worked for them. There are two things I'd say to that. One is that I think it
2: simplifies things to just talk about Lampard being one of their own. And, and bringing the, the feel-good factor back to the club. I think that's absolutely the case. And part of the narrative is also that he's kind of been landed with these players. He has to play them because of the because of the transfer back. Mm. Well, no, he went to Derby last season. He chose to take Tamori there on loan. He chose to take Mason Mount there on loan. Um, he chose to take Harry Wilson there on loan. He made those decisions. I didn't watch every Derby game last season. I know a lot of people who did. Mm. And they said that the three best players at the club by a mile last season were Tamori, Mount and Wilson. So, one... Lampard deserves credit for that, and two, he's chosen to play them. He didn't have to play Abraham at the start of the season. He could have played Giroud. Didn't have to play Mason Mount. Could have played Ross Barkley. Granted, injuries have happened at the back, so Tomori's had to play. But arguably, he's been, as you say, John, the, the biggest success story of the three. He's been absolutely brilliant. Um, and the thing I would say about the club as a well, whole, the, the policy—I haven't, you know, I know the academy there quite well. They have, they have loans managers. You know, this is, this is, this is a change in football generally. These players aren't being sent out anywhere and everywhere. It's being managed quite closely. Would those, Tamori and Mount have gone to Derby last season had Lampard not been there? Possibly not. Would Harry Wilson have gone there? No. You know, Clubs do a lot of work in deciding where their players go on loan. I know Liverpool do the same thing with their players. There was an issue with Ben Woodburn at Sheffield United last season. He didn't get the playing time so the loan was cut short. Clubs do a lot of work. They, they want to develop their players in the right way to make sure that when they come back they're ready for first team football and mm. Chelsea look to be reaping the benefits of what is a very well-thought-out
1: policy. Yeah, incidentally on that, do you expect Ethan Ampadu to come back to the club uh, from Germany because he's not getting any minutes with Red Bull, is he? Yeah, you would expect so. Mm. With um, Chelsea, obviously, looking at the weekend, Pulisic gets his hat-trick. That's not a baby step, that's a huge leap forward Mm. for him. Um, You met the the American national team coach uh, last week. Give us a flavour of his support and faith in him.
0: Well, I absolutely loved it. And I do think it's worth highlighting in that basically you know, a few of us have sort of known uh, the USA set up. And obviously in typical American fashion, they're very open, they're very sort of PR <laughs> proactive, mm. should I say. And I really applaud that. And, and uh, actually, I have, to, I have to be honest here, it was, it was the USA media sort of set up that basically got in touch with a couple of us, myself included, basically say, look, would you like to see... The, the USA coach, you know Greg Berhalter, and um, in Amsterdam because he'd come over to watch Pulisic in, a, in action for Chelsea last week. I mean, of course, you know, jumped at the opportunity and sat down with him um, in a hotel before the game, and he just offered this kind of calming voice, and it was just this a voice of support, basically saying, "Don't, don't worry about it. Everything is kind of everything that being built up about the." Transfer fees, a big fee, don't forget. The replacement of Hazard being the only signing in the summer because of the transfer window, that's all one thing. But disregard it. Just judge Pulisic on Pulisic, basically, and because he'll come good, don't worry about him. I've got no fears for him whatsoever. Yes, he's an emotional guy, explained... What happened, because people might remember that he broke down on the on the bench after being subbed in America's um, defeat to Canada. He was just sort of kind of explaining that, just offered some reassurance. And it just felt as if that was a really positive, good thing to do. And I just thought, fair play, they've gone on the front foot. And, and listen, it's clearly nothing to do with that. But I just think if a player feels reassured, if he feels that people have batting for him, then of course he's going to exude more confidence. Sure enough, that night he lays on an assist for the, for Batshuayi's winner and then on Saturday scores the perfect hat-trick. I mean, it's just it was a lovely moment. Pulisic, I think, strikes me as someone who's a bit introverted, a bit shy, sometimes difficult to kind of get his message across. And I just thought you saw... After the game at Burnley, him being interviewed, him doing some media, and suddenly there you know there is exuding confidence and belief, and it was a complete game changer and, and it 's kind of lift off and take off for his chelsea career from here lovely
2: it 's so easy to forget isn 't it we 're ten games into a Premier League season he 's what twenty twenty one twenty two mm. whatever it is Rewind twelve months, and I think we'll, we'll talk about him in a little bit. But Fabinho at Liverpool had barely been sighted mm. in the Liverpool midfield this time last year, and he's four years older than Pulisic. Um, had come from playing, a, you know, a good few seasons at, at Monaco, played away at Arsenal, I think, and looked off the pace. And there were plenty of Liverpool fans saying, "God, we've paid a lot of money for this guy, and look at him now. He's arguably the most important player in the team." Twelve mm. months before that, the same was being said about Andy Robertson. Managers sometimes the right thing to give these players a little bit of time. They're not acclimatising just to a new team, but to a new country, to a new way of playing, to a new kind of pressure.
1: Maybe patience is actually the right <laughs> thing sometimes. It's also one of the most impressive things. I mean, we, we talk about the young players, you know, quite obviously. They've done this. They've established themselves, you know, seven wins on the bounce, really without Kante, who, you know, by common consent, is their the most valuable player.
2: Yeah, I think you've got... Last season, Jorginho played as that single pivot and everything went through him. And after the first five or six games of the season, when teams realised, I think it was Everton who were the first team to just basically put someone on him and say, well, see what, you, see what you're made of now. But now Lampard obviously has changed the formation. So at the minute, Kovacic is the one sitting alongside Jorginho. But it just means that you've got two different options and opposition just has more to think about. Kante will add to that when he's fit and, and firing. But what Lampard's done beautifully is just create slightly more variety in the, in the build-up, which means that teams aren't quite certain what's coming. And then, of course, you just got huge amounts of pace and talent in front of that. Um, mm-hmm. So, no surprise that both Jorginho and Kovacic are probably playing their best football since they've
1: arrived at the club. Mm. Chelsea got Watford on Saturday, 10 games without a win. But on Wednesday, it's Manchester United in the League Cup. Is that a trophy that is a realistic target for both clubs? Well, I don't think
0: either club would be dismissive of it. You know, it's, it's, it, I think it's a trophy that's well worth winning and, you know, it's it's easy to look back upon and sort of say that it was Jose Mourinho's first um, trophy when, when he was at Chelsea first time around. It just gives you a platform, doesn't it? And I just think that, that, that I mean, Celciar is just under so much pressure right now and there's so many questions being asked about Man United and whether they're ready and what stage they are. Are
1: those questions legitimate in your view?
0: Yes, I do think. Having said that, I just feel that with Solskjaer, again, it goes back to that, that, that whole kind of... They brought him back as, an, as a club legend to try and unify a bit of a fractured set-up there. And what frustrates me is that I don't think... There's a couple of things that I think that Man United got wrong, which was giving him the job before the end of the season. But let's be honest, one, once he won in Paris, every club legend... You know, we're stepping forward to say you've got to give him the job. <laughs> give him the job right now. So it would be wrong to rewrite history. I also think that basically in the summer, everyone said it's going to take some time. It's going to take some some transfer windows to for Solskjaer to rebuild. Well, actually, I think if you're looking for a club to improve their squad in a window, then United did exactly that. 150 million pounds, one Pissaka, Maguire. James, you know, it's good business but they need, guess what, they need two or three more, as we said in the first time but then, funny enough, when things don't immediately click into shape then then basically, you know the wheels come off and the patience drains away they got it wrong also with, with Sanchez and Lukaku, you can't let both go, I mean you just can't, you know you've left yourselves horrendously short and now they're struggling for goals, well, well there's a shock, you know, it's just I, I just think it's going to be a process but You have to be patient with Solskjaer. Having gone in with Solskjaer, even if he finishes 12th, which they could easily do, be out of Europe next season, be mid-table, which is unthinkable for United, absolutely unthinkable. You have to give him time because if you've made that decision in the past, you cannot completely change it and go completely in a different direction at the drop of a hat and one, you know, and, and basically... What what you deemed was correct then, just being patient with that and change the goalpost that would be completely wrong in my view.
1: And they
2: are seventh. Yeah, they're not fifteenth. Um, and the nature of the nature of the league this season is probably that the front two will be away and gone as they were last season, and actually will be it'll be quite competitive beneath that. So there are two spots there to be had. I think increasingly people are thinking Leicester might take one of those, but mm. it's not going to. They're not going to. They're not going to fly into third place. They'll, it'll be close. It'll be a battle. Um, and you, John's absolutely right. United have made good signings. Maguire improves them. Wan-Bissaka improves them. Daniel James, not that any of us necessarily
1: expected him to, but he improves them. Do you expect, you know, there's been a, a, a revival of talk about Jadon Sancho going there. One, do you think he'd fit well? And two, do you think that talk is realistic? <sighs> Time will tell on whether it's
2: realistic or not. I think he would fit in quite nicely there, yeah. I think they, they are, whether United fans like it or not, they're a counter-attacking team this season. They play, they want to be solid at the back. They want to have one or possibly two people sit in front of them, and they want to just let guys around the front four just just run run at teams. Um, Jaden Sancho would definitely add to that. Um, whether at the minute, again, he's he's not getting a huge amount of minutes. Whether he's getting ahead of ahead of Daniel James, Marshall, and Rashford, I, I don't know. But he would definitely add something to them because, as we've seen with Marshall's injury this season, and Rashford hasn't looked totally fit a lot of the time. When those guys aren't there, they're they're a much weaker proposition going forward.
0: Mm. I just think Dortmund will sell because that's their model. Yeah, but they make no, they absolutely make no apology for it. Well, they, they get, get more think they than hundred million, wouldn't they? Absolutely, and and, and it's a well run club, and I applaud them. You know, because yeah. basically what they will do is they will get huge profit, bank it, and then and then move on to the next project, and they'll probably pluck the next English youngster off yeah. the off the carousel, and you know develop him, and and do the same again, and and you're building up the club, and it's it, it's a fantastic opportunity for those players and it's a
1: brilliantly run club You are at Anfield Mm. Um, we talked about tables Spurs are in the Mm. bottom half for the first time for four years was that yesterday a perfect illustration of two clubs going in different directions they played each other in the Champions League final Liverpool are building as a club and as a team and because probably of a lack of investment and maybe a lack of strategic drive Tottenham are going the other way is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. The only thing
0: was, I thought yesterday it was a really high quality game, and Spurs definitely played a part in that. And yes, there were some disappointing performances. I mean, a lot of people have highlighted Delhi Alli, but actually I think that you know Erickson was far quieter, um, and Delhi Alley was asked actually to drop back in and be a bit more defensive. Serge Aurier, what has happened there? that basically... Yeah. You An accident's planned. happened. It's been a... a I mean, it's ridiculous. Happen. He's a liability. Everyone knew that. He, he was, you know, the last couple of seasons, he's been basically, you know, dropped in and for occasional Champions League games. And he's always made a rash mistake in every single game. And, and now he's been sort of pushed into this position of being their only option at right back because, you know, Foyth has been out injured a bit. Walker Peters has he kind of got the... Uh, I don't know, the the aggression, the sort of maturity to be first choice right back right now, perhaps not. And so, you've got no option but to play Oriat. And it's like there's a mistake in every single game and sure enough there was one at Anfield. So, I just think that that is almost representative of, 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 of Spurs and their bad business in recent times in that basically they've allowed Trippier to go to Atletico Madrid. Now, Trippier might not be everyone's cup of tea, but he's a darn sight better than Aurier. Mm. And if a manager's mantra is always to improve improve the squad with signings, well, they've made it worse with a sale, Mm. really have. And I just think that they didn't need to do business on Trippier Mm. and and yet decided to. And I just think their lack of business, their lack of refreshing the squad, because I think Pochettino wanted to do that. Mm. I think Pochettino wanted to turn over a lot of players. The the accusation from from within, I think, is that sometimes Pochettino is too loyal to players. And I love that as a quality of a manager. But also, it can be something that can bite you as well because you you might hang on to players for too long, give them too many opportunities. But actually, he needed to be more ruthless. He wanted to be more ruthless. He hasn't turned over enough players. Mm.
1: A lot of talk about, you know, they're going to go shopping in January. Max Ahrens, who I know they've been looking at for a year or so, um... Uh, Ferguson, the young lad at, at West Brom. Um, does Do Spurs, in your view, Tony, have to change their f- basic philosophy in terms of recruitment?
2: I think they're under pressure too. I think Levy's done an incredible job over a quite a long period of time of selling players, I always think about Burbatov, Carrick amongst others, for huge profits and reinvesting the money in a, in a Prudent manner. Unfortunately, football at the top level isn't based on prudence anymore, is it? Um, and they're dropping behind it. You know, you can't. Trippier went for what twenty, thirty million. We're not talking life-changing amounts of money for the club. Yeah, I um, think it was closer to twenty, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's great. It's good money for an aging fullback who has defensive issues, but. If you're not replacing him with anyone and you're getting a slightly younger, you're left with a slightly younger fullback who has worse defensive issues, a very young fullback who seemingly doesn't have the trust of the manager, and a you know, a young Argentinian centre half who's barely been played there, then you're not you're not doing it right. That's why they're dropping behind. Um now I think this season is you know, it's a bit early, but it probably is a write-off in terms of that they're not challenging for the title. Um Who knows how far they go in the Champions League? I wouldn't be convinced they go particularly far. So it does feel like it's a season of transition already. It's just a matter of how much they can get, how much business they can get through in January. That's not really been their policy really either to do that much Um, and then get to the summer. But they don't become a huge sell to players, do they? If if you get a team who finished ninth in the Premier League and went out in the last 16 of the Champions League.
1: Whereas if you look at Liverpool, mm. um, since the Champions League final, the club itself seems to have taken on another dimension in terms of, you know, they've just had that court case where they've now got a new Nike deal, 20% of all income. They're going to have LeBron James and Serena Williams and Drake, who apparently he's not Sir Francis, but, you know, the the rapper.
2: Popular musician. Popular either. musician, yes. Beat combos and all
1: that. It's basically, they're building a super club there, aren't they?
0: They are, and, you know, Manchester United, I guess, have been the example to everyone because they've been this incredible money-making machine, this marketing, you know, global thing. And and, and the only thing missing is is, is the you know, quality on the pitch. Well, guess what? You know, Liverpool basically can become that, that global powerhouse from a financial, from a business point of view. And to match it, they, they've just got this wonderful, you know, football team on the pitch managed by... One of the best managers in the world, who completely gets the club, and it's just as to, to really understand, I guess, the global power of Liverpool. You've you've kind of got to go to the states and perhaps more pertinently, you know, the Far East, where their popularity is is, is off the scale. It's fantastic, and the, the the fact is that they're basically tapping into that on a global scale from both from a marketing point of view, but also that, that success. That success, you know, basically w- was the breeding point of that, that kind of following from the Far East in the first place, when, you know, when the years gone by, they were so successful, such a brilliant team to watch. And they're back there basically so they've got it from both angles and i think that's the that, that's a really interesting thing from liverpool because they just go from strength to strength their squad building has been exceptional they're european champions they've got the club world cup coming up in qatar you know in a couple of months time it's the the world is literally there for them and they're just such a global expanding force that, that no wonder they wanted to kind of tap into this Nike deal. I can see it from a point of view that basically just Nike's such a force and such a such a brand that they wanted to, you know, sort of kind of make the most of that. Given
1: all that, Tony, how worried should they be about uh, Salah and what looks to be a recurrent ankle problem? It's a bit soon to be
2: saying recurrent. I think, but I would say that as a Liverpool fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Yeah, it's a concern. You you saw against Man United when he wasn't there how when one of those front three doesn't play, there is quite a steep drop-off. We saw it with Firmino when he didn't start against Chelsea in the Super Cup um, and then came on to to great effect. When when any of those three are missing, they're a different prospect. Um, They've still got plenty of threat, but it's just not quite the same. Mm. If any of them um, misses any significant amount of time during the course of a season then you would have to question just how, how much they can sustain it because of the pressure it puts on us. Mane has been incredible for 18 months now, really. Um, when when the chips are down, when when the, the team's under pressure, more often than not, it's him that comes through. Again, he won the penalty uh, against Tottenham yesterday. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's absolutely no chance any of them will be playing against Arsenal uh, on Wednesday. Um, and you know, if, That'll be a reserve team, won't it? It will be, although it will be... Much-needed more minutes for Cater and for Oxlade-Chamberlain. Um, for Gomez, particularly, who have to be question marks about his current form. Um, bear in mind, he's not being picked ahead of Dan Lovren. Um, so we'll see. But, but, yeah, Klopp will do all he can to protect those front three, but they still play every game when it matters. Yeah. Um,
1: if we're looking at indispensable players, you mentioned him earlier on, Fabinho. Fabinho. Um, he absolutely was man of the match by a mile, I thought, against Spurs. Again, as someone who knows the club and the team, how important is he now? Incredibly important. You think about... Just think about the life that
2: he brings into other players. Jordan Henderson, who, granted, hasn't been in the in best of form at the start of this season, but he, for two, three seasons, played in that in that sitting role that Klopp likes, to decent effect. He's a, he's a, he's a very decent operator in that position, but he doesn't have the same positional awareness that Fabinho has. He doesn't have maybe the same strength of absolute ruthlessness that that Fabinho has and actually is a, is a much more dynamic footballer when, when playing a bit further, further forward. Fabinho just gives that security. You saw him against... He got booked, I think, at home against Barcelona after about five minutes for a foul on Messi. You're just thinking... This isn't, this isn't good. And to, to manage a game against a team like that for the next 85 minutes and, and avoid it, he's incredibly intelligent. He covers the ground incredibly quickly. His legs are telescopic. Just the number of times you think he loses the ball and suddenly a leg appears and he's got it and, and then suddenly we're back on the front foot again. Liverpool are back on the front foot again. Um, arguably, I mean, we all know about Van Dijk, we all know about the front three, but in terms of... Van Dyke is the most irreplaceable, I think, but Fabinho is is getting to that kind of level. Um, Yeah, yeah, You wouldn't want to be without him. No. Um,
1: Looking forward to the week, um, Southampton. Mm. You get done 9-0 at home. Mm -hmm. You've got Manchester City in midweek and you've got Manchester City at the weekend. Thanks for that, fixtures. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. How's your luck? Ralph (laughs) Hasenhuttle. Yeah, look, I actually really admire
0: Southampton as a football club because... Basically, they've tried over the last, say, five or six years to do do something different, to think outside the box, to try and recruit smartly, um, to try and actually appoint good managers. And let's be honest here, they've had a couple of bad years, basically, where they've let that model slip. Hassan was a bold, ambitious appointment. and, And honestly, he was a coup. He really was a coup, you know. but Basically, is very well respected within within Europe, isn't he? And I think he's he's an outstanding manager, very very impressive. And you you still go down to the training ground. I went there a few weeks to inter, in a few weeks ago in, to, to interview a player, Angus Gunn, who's probably gone through the ringer since. Um, but basically, the the players still have a belief in in Hasan that, that 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 shines through. What Southampton don't have right now is, is a squad of quality or depth. Basically, they've managed somehow to allow that to slip away. They, you know, they were close to getting some some players which would have seriously improve, improved the, the squad, but didn't get them. You know, they're stuck with very few options up front. You know, in, Redmond is you know still their best player. You, you know, War Prowse still does a good job for them defensively you know, they probably needed strengthening a little bit. I didn't think that Bertrand deserved to be sent off. I I just Mm. thought, you know, that you can make, I think, steal pictures and make sort of kind of, you know, the the sort of replays work Mm. however way you want to do it. I just didn't think it was a red card. Poor challenge, but a yellow. And I just think everything went wrong for them that night. But I think the club is right to stick with Hassan Hüttl. They've sent a very clear message Mm. to the players you're not getting rid of this guy. We're standing by him. We believe in him. So it's basically down to you to back the manager and get behind him. And I think he's a strong enough, talented enough manager. I wouldn't say to get them in the top half, but I do worry about Southampton. But equally, I still think that Southampton under Hasneruttle will be OK this season and, and avoid the drop,
1: mm. which I have to say, on nights like Friday night, is the only thing that you can think about. Yeah, when you, look at, <laughs> when you look at that, um, you, know, you mentioned Jordan Henderson earlier on there, Tony. Um, it's a question of character. Yeah. There were players there, their character was found wanting in understandably trying circumstances, and I tend to agree about the sending off with John. That's going to be the key, isn't it? If you haven't got that essential ingredient, you got, haven't got a team. Yeah, we've spoken to 150 plus
2: coaches in in my time at the Coach's Voice in in two years. They talk about man management all the time, psychology. It's not just about tactics. It's about managing the players, and and a lot of the time, young guys that you have at your disposal, there are some strong characters at Southampton. Hoyberg always seems like quite a strong character. Um, Romeo, when he's playing, always seems like fairly kind of strong character. And but you just sometimes I look at a back five and I think they're a back five because they're not good enough to be a back four (laughs) that's what I I see in Southampton's defence I just see defenders who are borderline Premier League quality and I think about the impact we talked about Van Dijk a minute ago you talk about the lack of leadership at Arsenal if you don't have strong characters and and good defenders then you're up against it already and I find it amazing do they start with Bednarek, Yoshida and and Vestergaard again as a back three? that doesn't inspire confidence. You wouldn't, you wouldn't pick either of those. You, you wouldn't look at two of those three as a back two and think they're going to work. So why would they work as a back three? I, I, right. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Actually, I think, I think they'll stay up and Hassan Houdal will not do a worse job than a lot of others who they would bring in to replace him. But they need to improve the squad quickly.
1: Yeah, and you, know, you look at the City attack and you mm. shove it and think what's <laughs> going to happen. You know, let's look at Raheem Sterling. Mm. If you could, John. Um, 17 goals, 11 assists, for both club and country this season already. Are we looking at a repeat Footballer of the Year? Yes.
0: I also think we could be looking at the Golden Boot winner. I also think, basically, you talk about Ballon d'Or, it, honestly, everything is there for him this season. He's just... I think he's having the best season of his life. I mean, last season was pretty irresistible. He took it to a, to, to a different level then. I just think... what What strikes me about this season, which was highlighted by Saturday's game was that City didn't play particularly well in the first half. But the one shining light, the one player that was driving them on, that basically you know, every time that they were looking to him, every time they were trying to get the ball to him, was Raheem Sterling. He was by far and away the best player on the pitch. And you know, within a minute of the restart, he's then put City ahead. And, and ultimately, that was the moment that won the game. So he's just everything to Man City. He's moved on to that to that different level now. I mean, I loved his interview. I think he did an interview with 442 magazine um, a few weeks ago when he was saying, please, you know, don't compare me to to Messi and Ronaldo. My figures are way off that. And I like that modesty in him. You know, if you speak to him, he's a really engaging Mm. You know, really likeable character who's made such a difference off the pitch. But he's also, that shouldn't take away from what a huge player on the pitch. He's, For my mind, he's the best player in the Premier League right now, individually. Um, I think he's certainly the most important player in the country for what he represents. And I think he is Manchester City's hope. You know, if they are to win the title this season, to make up that ground and wrestle it back from Liverpool, Sterling... Is the man? he's the go-to man? He's, he's by far and away the most important player for them. He's
2: also developed a real sense of ruthlessness over the years as well, which I really like about. It. I mean, going back to the Southampton Leicester game on Friday, the thing that I absolutely loved about that Leicester performance was that they just carried on going, and they've got some players in there. Vardy's obviously one, but Madison Telemans, these guys, they've got a hunger. They they want to they want to just kick on. If, why why wouldn't you score nine if you if, if you can? Um, Sterling absolutely has that, which maybe necessarily might not have had as a younger player, but I think playing under Guardiola for so long, there is a relentlessness. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And yeah, the fact that they, you know, that goal against Villa was, what, 20 seconds after the, after the restart? You know, he was on it. Mm, not every player was, but he absolutely was.
1: It's lovely to actually talk about football and footballers, but we're spending so much of our time these days talking about VAR. You know, again, it was another horrendously inconsistent weekend. Is VAR now more trouble than it's worth? (laughs) Well, we had a little exchange on Twitter on
0: Saturday, didn't we, because you were making the rugby comparison. Yeah. And uh, the only thing I would say out of that is that basically uh, that highlighted the fact that with video technology, even when... Rugby is held up as having the perfect solution. You have things in that that you leave you baffled. But the communication Mike, fantastic. I couldn't agree more with you. Absolutely. And that is the frustration, I think, basically. I had, you know, there were so many people complaining that basically they didn't know why this decision, like, you know, the Emirates, a classic case, mm-hmm. is that basically if you're at home watching a game live on TV and some of the games are brilliantly covered, aren't they? And you get absolutely every minute detail. Then basically you will know exactly what's gone on and why. And so basically on, on the game on Saturday lunchtime, for example, the breakdown was really interesting, wasn't it? That basically it was De Bruyne's cross and it would have been offside against Sterling had David Silver got the touch. Mm. Well, basically it was deemed, wasn't it, by the referee and the VAR that it went straight in. And then only afterwards <laughs> did the, the dubious goals panels stand up and say, actually, it came off David silver's it's David Silver's goal. And I thought the Premier League basically fessed up and the, their tweet was remarkable because they sort of, they had to confess on on Twitter that this is an in, independent panel of VAR. So effectively what they're saying is VAR got it wrong. My issue with VAR, and I'm a big I've always been a big supporter of it, and advocate. It's the only way to go. is the killing of emotion, mm. and there's n- not much you can do about that. The communication with the fans in the ground. You are also asking a selection of the worst generation of, of officials that I can remember The the VAR is only as good as the officials operating it. People seem to think, oh, it's video technology. It's not video A robot making the decision. It's still the the, the referees who are not good enough analysing the video technology. You know, how on earth can someone, someone come up with a penalty against Everton? On
1: Saturday, it just never is. Having not come up with a penalty for Watford the previous Absolutely week. Absolutely, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. You were telling me earlier that you were a very strong supporter. Yeah, yeah. Have you still got that faith in it?
2: I'm, I'm still pro-VAR, but I'm a lot closer to those who are anti it than I was. I think the issue is, again, to echo John's point, VAR isn't some magical entity that's ruining football. It's still fundamentally being run by people. My issue with my desire for the introduction of VAR was to eliminate human error. <laughs> no, if it's not doing that. It's gone that. well, is not it? Exactly. Well, we, we, we were saying earlier, if the human error has moved from the pitch to some bloke sat in front of a TV screen, then it's not fulfilling any function. And, it's still, and, and the negative impact that it's having is growing. It's, it's killing emotion in the game. It's, it, it's taking too long. I don't really have an issue with things taking too long if, if the right decision's being
0: made, I have to say. Rugby seems to, to manage it pretty well. Um, it runs better in also the Champions League. Because does, yeah. they, they don't have the time delay, but they do still go over and consult those pitch-side monitors. Now, I'm, I'm really frustrated by, by, I have to say, some of my colleagues in, in, in journalism. Not everyone was afforded the opportunity to go to the stop, Stockley Power briefing from VAR. And so, basically, not everyone is guilty. But if you were given the opportunity, and if you wanted to have that opportunity, you really should have gone. Because in amongst all the sort of the briefing and the detail, I thought that basically the one thing that shone out was that the referees are being actively discouraged from going to the pitch side monitors they might they, as well put them on eBay well completely, <laughs> and I totally agree with you basically the, what the breakdown was that they did nine youth tournaments at st george 's Park and they, and the part of the VAR uh, trial run was to was to use those in those nine youth tournaments now after the first two, when the pitch side monitors were being used all the time basically there were huge huge delays and it was basically causing you know carnage basically even at that at that level they took it upon themselves to say trust the VAR do not go over to the pitch side monitors so much and basically for the remaining seven youth tournaments they hardly consulted the the monitors at all and that is the way forward now you might remember I think it was two international breaks ago when basically there was a lot of anger and angst about the sort of VAR and there was a Premier League stakeholders meeting and outside Mike Riley was was interviewed and he was basically saying well I've never said don't don't consult the, the you know pitch side monitors the referees can do that if they want I have to say I was so disappointed in Mike Riley with that because That was the message to the referees. And having spoken to referees about it, that remains the message. Now, Mike Riley should be standing up, in my view, for the referees. But the accusation from former referees is that Mike Riley is not enough of a leader. And again, I think he's been found wanting on that. Because this weekend, the case in point, if you're not sure, if you're not certain, go and consult the pitch side monitors. It's it's wrong. Give Give that power back to the referees.
2: I think it's right for VAR, to, for the guy in the, in, the, in the studios to say, we think there's an issue. Mm. We think you should have another look at it. Mm. But exactly, give the power back to the referees. How, long, how many times do they need to watch it to
1: make it... Dist- yeah. yeah, we could talk about it all day. <laughs> we can talk about it all day, <laughs> and we probably will. And that's the problem, is getting away from football. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.